This week on the show, we cover your impact that you made on the FreeBSD Foundation and on FreeBSD itself in 2019. We have a WireGuard and OpenBSD router project, or how-to for you. Uh, Amazon now has FreeBSD ARM 12 uh, available, so we also cover Package Source 2019 quarter 4. The joys of Unix keyboards is in this episode as well, and OpenBSD on DigitalOcean, with much, much more as well in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 333, Unix Keyboard Joy, recorded for the 15th of January 2020. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Teuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Uh, welcome to this week's episode with, uh, as we say in German, a Schnapszahl, uh, which is like a number that is always the same, 333. Uh, we've come this far, so uh, it's time to dig into the headlines this week. Uh, we have an article from the FreeBSD Foundation about your impact on FreeBSD in 2019. So this is a summary of uh, all the activities and the things you made possible by uh, either donating or coming to our uh you know, booth at events or talking to us and, you know, connecting some of the companies to users or any kind of ways. Uh, so this is a, a nice wrap up or a write up of how uh, you impacted the uh, FreeBSD Foundation and the FreeBSD project uh, in 2019. This is a post on the blog uh, at, from late December. And it says, it's hard to believe that 2019 is nearly over, especially you know now that it's over. Um, but and say, uh, it has been an amazing year for supporting the FreeBSD project and community. Um, because as we reflect over the last 12 months, we realize how many events we've attended all over the world and how many lives we've touched in so many ways. From advocating for FreeBSD to implementing FreeBSD features, my team has been uh, there to help make FreeBSD the best open source project and operating system out there. In 2019, we focused on supporting a few key areas where the project needed the most help. The first area was software development. Uh, whether it was contracting the FreeBSD developer to work on projects like Wi-Fi support uh, to provide internal staff development uh, time to quickly implement hardware workarounds uh, for security issues, uh, and so on, we've stepped in to help keep FreeBSD innovative, secure, and reliable. Software development includes supporting the tools and infrastructure that make the development process go smoothly, and we're uh, working on that with team members leading up the continuous integration effort and actually involved in the cluster admin and security teams. Our advocacy efforts focused on recruiting new users and uh, contributors to the project. We attended and participated in 38 conferences uh, in 21 different countries. Uh, from giving FreeBSD presentations and workshops to staffing tables, we were able to have one-to-one -one conversations with thousands of different attendees. Our travels also provided opportunities to talk directly with the FreeBSD commercial and individual users, contributors, and future uh, users and contributors. We've been uh, we've seen an increase in use and interest in the free and FreeBSD from all these organizations and individuals. These meetings give us a chance to learn more about what organizations need and what they and others are working on. The information helps us inform the work that we should fund in the future. So, in 2019, your donations helped us continue our efforts to support critical areas in FreeBSD, such as the operating system improvements itself, providing staff to immediately respond to urgent problems and implement new features, and functionality allowing for the innovation and stability that you've come to rely on. 
improving and increasing test coverage, continuous integration, and automated testing with a full-time software engineer to ensure you receive the highest quality, secure, and reliable operating system. Uh, security, providing engineering resources to bolster the capacity and responsiveness of the security team, um, making sure you have peace of mind when security issues arise. Growing the number of FreeBSD contributors and users uh, from our global FreeBSD outreach and advocacy efforts, including expanding into regions like China, India, Africa, and Singapore, and offering FreeBSD workshops and presentations at more conferences, meetups, and universities around the world. And finally, providing opportunities such as developer and vendor summits for companies to visit and help facilitate collaboration between commercial users and FreeBSD developers, as well as helping to get uh, changes pushed into the FreeBSD source tree and creating a bigger and healthier ecosystem. And say, so, uh, we've accomplished all of, uh, a lot in this year, and we are still uh, only a small 501c3 nonprofit organization focused on supporting FreeBSD and not a trade organization like so many other open source foundations. For us to continue to increase our efforts for FreeBSD, we depend 100% on your donations, and we need your help to make and increase the, the work we are doing, and your support directly impacts the FreeBSD project. If you love FreeBSD like we do, please help us spread the word. And if you haven't already done so, please make a donation. Together, we can accomplish even more for FreeBSD. That's uh, the the idea. And if you look at the top of the page, you see the amount raised last year still and the goal that we had. So we uh, definitely exceeded that. So thanks for everyone who donated this year. Uh, we're still processing some of the last donations that came in on like December 31st or so, or uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> something like that. So this is not the final number still, but we definitely reached our goal. So uh, definitely thank you for that. And this money makes it possible to support the project this way and continue funding some of these efforts that are still ongoing. But, you know, for 2020, what I'd really like to see is the number of individual, uh, the number of donors uh, topping 1,000. All right, so there was only 758 uh, in 2019. So it doesn't have to be the big, uh, uh, you know, contributions. It could be a $5 donations or as, as small as you have it. Yes. Uh, in particular, like we mentioned, as a 501c3, um, it has to be a public benefit, uh, not just a couple of big companies footing the bill. And so getting that number of donors up uh, would be very helpful. Exactly. So... No matter the amount, we're always happy to um, use it because it gets back into the community directly to fund some of these efforts we listed here. And that overall um, improves the operating system, the outreach that we're doing, and the education that we're also uh, doing in some of these conferences and events. Okay, that's a good start into this episode with some positive notes. And uh, we also have something good to uh, hear from the OpenBSD uh, project because WireGuard uh, on an OpenBSD router might be an interesting project for some people out there. So here's a tutorial how to do exactly that. Yeah, so WireGuard, if you don't know, is a modern VPN protocol that uses the latest uh, encryption algorithms instead of some old crufty stuff uh, and is designed to be fast and have a small code base. Uh, it works very nice and is portable to a number of different operating systems. So um, they write uh, that the uh, the setup is like this. Uh, they have a collection of devices, both wired and wireless. Uh, they are nutted through their router, OpenBSD 6.6, that is. Uh, and they go out via their VPN provider. Uh, this is Azire. Is it Azire Star? Oh, AzireVPN.com, yeah. And out to the internet using WG Quick to start WG. So they have a little bit of a uh, 
you know, <laughs> sketch here how this looks. And the prerequisites for this is that you install WireGuard-GO, the client and server, and the WireGuard tools uh, with do as package underscore add and then the tool names. Then you configure PF in your pf.conf. Uh, this is the simplest PF file that they put in here. Of course, you can always do more, but to get just get this part started, um, this is the required uh, bits here. The WAN interface is RE0. Uh, the switch plugs into LAN RE2, and WG will create the VPN interface TAN0. Uh, but the two important sections are the max-mss1360, more below on this, and the nut underscore two line to the VPN interface. So they have a table for usual networks that you uh, should take care of. Uh, they have a block policy to drop, and uh, then they start um, the log interface and set the skip on LO0, because that's what you do. And uh, then you start uh, doing a little bit of packet scrubbing. And there's our Max MSS 13.60. And then you match out on $VPN, which is your uh, de defined uh, TAN0 in this case. INET from egress network to any NUT2 VPN0. Okay, so WG config down here is if you are connecting to a WG endpoint you run, you will need to generate your public-private keys and use the relevant address endpoints or DNS settings. Uh, this is well documented in Jasper's article. That's a link here. Otherwise, your provider should provide these uh, like Azire's config generator. This file is stored in etcwireguard/vpn.conf, uh, which can be anything you like as long as you reference it and it ends with a conf. So these are your DNS addresses and your uh, peer addresses with public keys and private keys. So then network settings. Uh, this was the missing piece to get WG fully working, the WireGuard. By default, by outbound interface, had an MTU of 15,000. Wait, 1,500, sorry. Uh, and WG Quick creates a ton device with an MTU of 80 bytes fewer. So this is... 1420. Uh, they, wasn't, they weren't aware or not uh, able to find a particular documentation as to why this is 80 bytes instead of the usual 40 slash 60 bytes uh, of a TCP header that uh, is normally the size. So at this point, the router was able to use the uh, WireGuard connection perfectly, but another clients had issues connecting to particular sites. It was also necessary to set the max MMS another 80 bytes lower than the TAN0 MTU and the sysctl net.itc.tcp.mss default to the same. Okay, so when you're running this, so doubtless this could be improved on, but currently they start uh, the wire guard manually when the router boots. This and the nutting on the VPN interface means it's pos or impossible for clients to connect to the internet without the VPN being up. Okay, so you're always uh, secured this way. Uh, as their router is on a UPS and only reboots when a kernel patch requires it, it's a compromise they can live with. And running WireGuard quick, please replace the VPN with whatever you have named in your .conf file and reload the PF rule by just doing do as WireGuard quick, up VPN, and then do as pfctl your pfconf. The, the reload there is so that um, PF notices your the new interface that uh, the WireGuard created. Ah, yes, otherwise it doesn't pick it up. Okay, so far so good and fairly straightforward and the rule set's not too complicated. Okay, so these are the wire guards, wire guardians on OpenBSD.
Time for news roundup. Uh, in this week's episode, we have uh, the announcement that Amazon now has FreeBSD slash ARM 12 available. Yeah, so um, Amazon has new ARM-based instances based on their uh, Graviton 2 uh, custom uh, CPU, uh, which is based on the ARM Neoverse chips or cores. Um, compared to the first-generation Graviton processors, which Amazon called A1, uh, these give about seven times the performance the floating point performance is now twice as fast as well, and there's additional memory channels and cache speed uh, memory access can be much faster as well. Uh, the company basically offers uh, three different classes of these Graviton chips. Basically, they're Graviton if they end in a G. So the M6G class is your general purpose instances. The C6 class is compute optimized instances. And the R6 class is your memory-optimized instances. And if you also see a D on the end of the type after the G, that means that they have NVMe for local storage, uh, so we'll have high-performance uh, ephemeral storage as well. Uh, and you can scale all the way up to 64 uh, cores, half a terabyte of memory, and 25 gigabits of network on these ARM-powered machines. Uh, so as you can see, these ARM-powered servers are not just a fad. AWS already promises a 40% better price-performance ratio on these ARM machines compared to the uh, x86-based machines. Uh, and uh, they launch with support for FreeBSD. Oh, excellent. So if you follow the link, you can see you can grab uh, FreeBSD 12.1 running on Amazon's A1 instances for as little as 2.5 cents per hour. Uh, and they have uh, a whole selection of different sizes to pick from. Yeah, so if you want to start small, uh, that's a good starting way. But uh, you can also scale up if you <laughs> really need a bit more, a bit more machine power. Oh yes, that should get some stuff done. Do we know if we built any packages with that already? Um, I don't think we're using the Amazon instances to build packages, but uh, there are packages available for the instances. If that's what you mean. So yeah, people can try this out and do a bit of. Uh, ARM hosting. Mm -hmm. Ah, and it's time for uh, the fourth quarter of Package Source 2019. So to tell you what's new there is this um, announcement here from Greg Talk Truxel. And Greg writes, uh, the Package Source developers are proud to announce the 65th general a quarterly release of package source wow the cross-platform packaging system uh packages is available with more than twenty thousand packages running on 23 separate platforms so in total 190 packages were added 96 packages removed and 1868 package updates were done uh to 1388 uh, unique packages uh, since package source quarter three of 2019 so as usual, a large number of updates and additions were processed uh, for Go, uh, Guile, Perl, PHP, Python, and Ruby. Uh, this is yeah in package source tradition of adding useful packages, updating many packages to a more current version, and pruning unmaintained packages that are believed to have essentially no users. So in the 2019 fourth quarter release, they are welcoming the following notable package additions. Many Qt and KDE packages were updated to K, uh, KDE 5 and Qt 5. Uh, Ansible 2.9.2 is available. Uh, Clang and LVM are on 9.0 versions. Uh, CMake 3.16. Uh, Compat 0, which is NetBSD 8 compatibility for 9 and current. Uh, an Emacs snapshot 27.0.50. Uh, they got Erlang versions 22. Firefox 70.01. Uh, recent Git version 
Go, LibreOffice, OpenJDK. That's uh, quite a good stuff here. Good collection. Mod, Nextcloud, Node.js, PHP 7.4, uh, Postgres 12, Python 3.8. Ah, yes, that's a good collection of, of goodiness, of good. Good, good new stuff. Uh, so they say notable goodbyes as well to Node.js 6 and PHP 7.1. Ah, yes, goodbye with that. Node.js is on version 13 now, and uh, PHP is on 7.4. So That's quite a bump, yeah. <laughs> so be gone with the old stuff, in with the new. Uh, changes to the package source infrastructure itself uh, included many small improvements, but no significant changes. Uh, and users on NetBSD 7 uh, with GCC should expect significant breakage as the upstreams of many packages require newer compilers and language features. Uh, this is newly mentioned, but the situation is not sharply worse than previous branches, so uh, maybe it's time for an upgrade. Okay, so thanks for uh, that update to Packet Source and their continued uh, support, not just for one platform. Again, it's 23 different platforms. So next, over at uh, Donut Studios, we have the joy of Unix keyboards. And it starts off, I fell in love with a dead keyboard layout. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a decade or so ago, while uh, helping a, f a friend's father clean out an old building, we came across an ancient Sun Microsystem server. We found it curious. Everything about it was different from what we were used to. The command line was black and white. The connectors were all strange and foreign, and the keyboard layout was bizarre. We never did much with it, turning it on to make uh, all the lights in his house dim, and our joint knowledge of Unix was non-existent. We sat in his bedroom for years, uh, supporting his television as, at the foot of his bed. But I never forgot that keyboard, though. The thought that there was an alternative layout out there seemed to intrigue me. And uh, now I am ruined for all other keyboards. Mac is the main platform at my new job. I found myself unhappy with Apple's keyboards. They're flat, bland, and completely unsatisfying to type on. I dug out an old Apple design keyboard and used that for several months, but I still needed something more. I read about the happy hacking keyboard, and after some uh, deliberation, decided to give it a try. I thought I could learn uh, to accept most of the layout changes, but the lack of arrow keys on the professional model made me squirm a little. Luckily, there's a light version that includes the arrow keys. Oh. So he purchased the Happy Hacking Keyboard Lite 2. The Happy Hacking Keyboard, much like the Sun uh, Microsystems keyboard I found years earlier, featured a Unix layout. Um, they designed it uh, with typing at the terminal in mind. So for those familiar with Unix keyboards, there are a few uh, distinctions. First, the control key uh, moved to where caps lock normally is. This makes it much easier to hit common commands um, than its usual location, uh, often even without uh, having to leave the home row. I can't imagine why anybody thought caps lock should have such a prominent placement. <laughs> the meta key, or also known often as the Windows key, um, is in its rightful place right next to the space bar, like it is on the Mac keyboard. Uh, the backspace key moved down a row to be above the enter key, um, that would drive me nuts because that's where pipe is. Yeah. Um, this change is my favorite change. Having a small reach, uh, normally my hands have to leave home row to hit backspace. But on a UX keyboard, I have no issue hitting it with my pinky uh, as the rest of my fingers remain on the home row. Um, this escape is now in reach of the home row as well, um, basically being where the uh, tilde and back tick key are on my keyboard. The tilde and backslash have moved to... Um, to use the location of backspace. Uh, so putting the tilde and backtick key basically where 
uh, Backspace normally is. Uh, working exclusively on Unix systems now, I don't mind the slash being harder to reach. I would understand a Windows user find that very annoying because you know you don't usually use the backs uh, the escape slash very often. Mm. Anyway, the Happy Hacking keyboard is a minimal version of Unix keyboard. Uh, to this end, the F keys are mapped to function plus one, two, three, etc. The Happy Hacking encourages you to stay on home row. You can hit any key on the keyboard without leaving. If you find, uh, I find my typing accuracy and speed have improved thanks to this. Uh, it also features one more change I don't care for. The backspace key by default performs a forward delete. Uh, luckily, changing uh, this is easy as flipping a toggle switch on the back of the keyboard. Uh, that might have to do with, you know, on Mac, backspace is actually delete or something like that. In closing, I recommend this keyboard to anyone who spends a lot of time at a terminal. Uh, you are able to do more of what you need without having to leave the home row. So especially if you're into touch typing, uh, which I don't do, um, that can be a big difference. I'm just happy that there is no caps lock at all on this keyboard. Well, when was the last time you used caps lock? <laughs> Never. So, But I always, like, yeah, I, not intentionally, I use this and it's like, no, I don't want to write all in all caps. Uh, so this is an improvement here. So if you're in a, in a market for a new keyboard might have a look at that not the one that's provided with a new computer so yeah keyboards uh, always interesting and, uh, and there's also like the keyboard wars like what's the proper layout and what kind of what's better for programming uh, so it's definitely a personal taste thing just use whatever makes you happy yeah uh, for me it's just changing takes too much time so i've just bought you know if i buy a keyboard i buy three of them and use them everywhere It, it took me like two weeks to learn the Mac keyboard when I switched from from Windows to the Mac. But then after that, I never looked back. So I wonder if I could relearn if I switch to a different keyboard layout. But eh, it, it takes time to you know adjust. And then you switch back sometimes. And then you're like super messed up. But yeah, uh, definitely personal taste. And uh, we leave it up to you. Uh, so the next thing that we have here is OpenBSD on DigitalOcean. So this is over at going-flying.com. Nice <laughs> domain name. Uh, so they write, uh, last night I had a need to put together a new OpenBSD machine. Since I already used DigitalOcean for one of my public DNS servers, I wanted to use them for this. Um, but sadly, like all too many of the other cloud providers out there, they don't support OpenBSD. Now they do support FreeBSD. And I found a couple of write-ups that show how to use FreeBSD as a shim to install OpenBSD. They're both sort of old at this point, and with OpenBSD 6.6 out, I ran into a bit of a snag. The default these days is to use a GPT partition table to enable EFI booting. This is generally pretty sane, but it looks to me like the FreeBSD droplets don't support this. Um, I don't know if FreeBSD definitely uses GPT for its partition table. Uh, I don't know what the uh, DigitalOcean droplets of FreeBSD do, though. Anyway, after the installer booted the VM failed to boot, I was unable to find the bootloader. Thankfully, DigitalOcean has a recovery ISO that you can boot by simply switching to it and powering off and then on your droplet. Uh, this boots what appears to be a Ubuntu image with a menu of options that can help you fix your Linux-based VM. I think this is a relatively new feature uh, and might have been the way that these tutorials would have been written if it existed at the time. In fact, instead of using FreeBSD install to shim your OpenBSD install, you could do the following. Create a FreeBSD droplet, and the file system version don't really matter because you're going to it away. Once created, powered off, select the recovery ISO. Once booted, select option 6 at the shell, fetch the OpenBSD installer image, 
and then use DD to write that to your hard drive, uh, power off the droplet, boot from the hard drive, and it'll boot the OpenBSD installer, do a whole disk install, uh, and it'll overwrite the hard drive in place, and you'll now have a working OpenBSD system. Okay. And yeah, that's probably a bit easier uh, than doing it with FreeBSD. So thanks to their new recovery ISO option, uh, you now have a faster way to get OpenBSD or... I don't know if NetBSD's installer would work with this. Um, the main reason that the OpenBSD one works this way is basically it loads as a RAM disk. So when the installer is running, it's not using the disk, so you can just overwrite the disk. Cool. Uh, if you wanted to do your own install of FreeBSD, uh, you could do the same kind of idea uh, by writing the um, MFSBSD image from Linux onto the disk, booting that, and then installing FreeBSD manually if you want you know, a different layout than what uh, DigitalOcean provides in particular. You know, if they're not using EFI and you want to. Okay, nice, nice. So more VPN providers or, uh, 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 you know, <laughs> cloud providers uh, uh, make it available to run their, their favorite BSDs as well. So time for the Beastie Bits this week. Uh, we have some historic things here uh, in the first item because FreeBSD now defaults to LLVM on PowerPC. Yep, so this is a commit from uh, just before the end of the year from Justin Hibbets, who sets LLVM as the default toolchain for all PowerPC targets. This enables LLVM as the default compiler for PowerPC, PowerPC64, PowerPC SPE, as well as uh, LLD becoming the default linker for PowerPC64. It's not quite ready for PowerPC or PowerPC SPE yet, but uh, that work is continuing. Yeah, so this is uh, another milestone in the get rid of GCC 4.2.1, is it? Yes, uh, the last GPL v2 version of GCC uh, should be able to be deleted relatively soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that's kind of a, you know, we made it work, we made it happen, and there was much rejoicing. So when that happens, we'll definitely have it uh, covered here. Uh, then we have an interview with Theo de Rat, uh between Ottawa 2019 Hackathon and BSDCAN 2019. Yes, yeah, so this is uh, Tom Smythe, uh, who you might have met at a number of BSD conferences, uh, but he managed to sit down with Theo at a pub, I think, uh, and get an interview in between the OpenBSD Hackathon and BSDCAN last year. Ah, yes, good. So it's uh, it says, Have you ever wondered about the whys and the hows Theo and his friends in OpenBSD relentlessly pursue security perfection in computer operating systems and the software that runs on them? Or perhaps you are more concerned about much deeper questions like what operating system does Theo use on his laptop? <laughs> or who is his favorite developer? Or who is his favorite user or assistant? Or are you just in need of some serious life tips for dealing with trolls? <laughs> Uh, so, okay, enough of the superficial question. Let's let Leo do the talking and you can check out the video uh, with the link. Uh, big thanks to Theo for his time in the interview and for Tom for making the interview. Also, Tom says he enjoyed making it with him and hopes all of you enjoyed as well and hope that the wider public learned something new from it. Oh yeah, this is definitely something uh, worthwhile watching because you don't get this kind of insight into OpenBSD's leadership uh, often or not in this uh, mm -hmm. interview type. Uh, then in our next item, we have uh, the Bastille BSD poll about what uh, will people like to see in 2020. And uh, over at Twitter, they did a poll. And the thing they'd like to see most in Bastille BSD 2020's roadmap is drum roll with a <laughs> with a big uh, success uh, is VNet with 70. 
3.8% of all the people who voted. That is 141 votes. Wow. Uh, followed up by monitoring and remediation with 17%. Then nested container support, 5.7%. And then followed by other, with people uh, commenting on that. So yeah, seems like VNet is very popular and people want to have it in uh, Bastille BSD. Yeah, so I guess uh, when they uh, have it, we'll mention it here. Uh, if you have other news or interesting stories about uh, Bastille BSD, who are, uh, maybe you're using it or uh, have some interesting story for us, send it to us at feedback at bsdnow.tv because uh, we should cover this uh, interesting BSD a little bit more. Then an item named Notes on the Classic Book, the design of the Unix operating system. This is uh, GitHub. Uh, what is this? This is some reading. Yeah, so this is uh, somebody's notes on as they were reading through the design of the Unix operating system book. I guess is a predecessor to the design of the FreeBSD operating system books that uh, Kirk and George write and Robert. Uh, oh, ah, and you can jump into individual chapters and see the notes there. Ah, some scans even with like, uh, I, I clicked randomly on the multiprocessor systems section because why not? And there's a scan here uh, that shows how processes are laid out. Although is this, this is not mentioning NUMA yet because it wasn't the thing back then, but it's still a kind of good introduction how things work and how processes are defined and in the internals of the kernel. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is good uh, study material if you want to actually know how like process control works or memory management or anything that you always wanted to know. Yeah, just you know, keep in mind that this particular book is is quite old now, and that yeah, you might want to. Uh, well, it might be a good starting place because things were a bit simpler back then. Uh, you might want to follow it up with the design of the FreeBSD operating system, the latest edition, which I think is third. Second? Uh, third should be. Uh, yeah, the newest edition. Uh, I have It's just out of reach right now on my desk, <laughs> but I have a copy. Yeah, keep it close. You might want to <laughs> reference something. <laughs> yeah, and it'll be a time for a new one pretty soon because that one was based on FreeBSD 10. Oh, yes. But I, uh, I think you shouldn't mention it to the authors because they're kind of aware of that and people are now, you know, getting expectant. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll leave you uh, with that. And oh, the next thing is also a bit more for the historic historians, or the people interested in the history of Unix, uh, because we have the Multics history page over at multitions.org. Yes, uh, so the Multitions website presents the story of the Multics operating system for people interested in the system's history, uh, especially Multitions. The site's goal is to preserve the technical ideas and advances of Multics so others don't need to reinvent them. Record the history of Multics, its builders, and its users uh, before we all forget. Uh, give credit where it's due for important innovations, and remember some good times and some good people. Currently, the Multitions website contains 460 HTML pages comprising over a million lines, 600 PDF files, f- uh, 460 graphic images, and the site has benefited from the contributions of too many authors to list. Uh, contributions are invited if you have a correction, fact, date, name, anecdote, picture, or anything else to share with the multitions anywhere by sending it to the editor. Well, this is worth exploring a little bit with the, uh, with the articles. And there's also a Multics simulator if you want to try to run Multics. <laughs> yeah, some uh, maybe some people get uh, the historic vibe and want to see or recreate what they might have uh, started working with when they started their computing career. 
Yeah, cool. There's always stuff for the historians and uh, people who want to, you know, reminisce. But yeah, you know, this is where a lot of the ideas that, uh, you know, the stripped down version of Multics is basically uh, what Unix was. And it goes on from there. Yeah, and many of the concepts might still originate there and uh, are still the same today with little changes only. Uh, and then we should plug another uh, BSD user group, yours specifically, one more time. Yes, I just wanted a reminder, because it's been a week. Uh, we're trying to have the first meeting of the Hamilton or Southwest Ontario or whatever we're going to end up calling it, uh, BSD user group. Um, I don't know. Currently thinking somewhere half between, halfway between the um, the Portland BSD pizza night type thing and the the Polish user group meeting. I, I cribbed the website from the Polish user group. Anyway, um, we're going to have our first meeting on February 11th. The idea is to have it on the first Tuesday of every month, but we're just planning the first meeting at this point uh, from 6.30 to 9 o'clock at the Boston Pizza on Upper James in Hamilton. Uh, if you go to studybsd.com, I repurposed one of my old domains for a website for it for now. But uh, we're going to get a bunch of people together, talk about BSD stuff, uh, plan out, maybe name the group, come up, figure out what we're going to do for future meetings, whether we should always have the meetings in Hamilton, if we should find a good venue and just use it every month, or if we should rotate around to make it easier for people to get to or something. Um, you know, whether we will have the next meeting in Kitchener or something instead of Hamilton, but uh, we'll see. Uh, also, we'll do, you know, BSD and ZFS question time. If people have questions or uh, want help with stuff. Uh, if you bring your copies of uh, ZFS Mastery, I can sign them. Uh, Groff will make an appearance if you want to get your picture taken with Groff the BSD Goat. Uh, if you have other ideas, do let me know. Uh, happy to try anything. And hopefully uh, anybody who happens to be from the greater Toronto, Hamilton, Kitchener area uh, will be able to come out and join us. Yeah, have a nice, fun evening with the BSD folks. And uh, I guess this is not too BSD-specific at this point. It could be any BSD. So, yeah. Yep, any BSD. Uh, and, you know, come out and uh, I'll buy food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have a drink and uh, talk to people about geeky stuff that you cannot do with other people that don't know about BSD. Yes. This is the time for feedback and questions. As always, we ask you to send us feedback um, to the show or any of the episodes that you listen to, or if you found any interesting bits that we might have missed on the net, uh, send this to feedback at bsdnow.tv and there are chances uh, that are quite good that it might appear in a future episode, either in this segment or in one of the segments that we had already. Uh, the first one is Bill with a 1.1 CD-ROM. Ah, I see where this is going. Bill writes, Hi guys, love the podcast. Thank you. I think I heard you talking about some images of old CDs on a recent episode. Maybe not that recent as I don't always listen to them in order. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, anyway, he thought to send us this picture. Uh, this is, of course, not too interesting for the people listening. But here's, uh, if you look at the show notes, there's the link to a FreeBSD 1.1 CD-ROM. Ah, I've never seen one of those in the in the wild. Yeah, from June 1994. Yes, cool. I would have been nine years old. <laughs> yeah, I was also not very old. Uh, I, I was interested in other stuff back then. Um, <laughs> this is Walnut Creek CD-ROM. Yep. And, oh, it doesn't say, ah, uh, 
Yeah, for 386, 486, and Pentium computers for people who had one already. Uh, yeah, cool. I don't know if it's one of the ones that's missing, uh, but if you happen to have any of these older CDs, um, there's been an effort to collect the like SHA-256 hashes of the files off all of them uh, so that uh, when we create archives, we can make sure that we actually have the correct versions of the files. So thanks for that memorabilia, although <laughs> we didn't remember it, we just saw it for the first time. But uh, people who are a bit uh, more in the sage age <laughs> might have seen those uh, when they came out. Uh, so next one is Greg uh, with more 50-year anniversary information. Ah, yes, we mentioned that, Unix's 50-year anniversary. And uh, Unix, uh, Greg writes, is running on a PDP-7 in 2019, and he posted uh, two links... The first one is over at livingcomputers.org. When you say living, um, it means they are still running. And ah, look behind the scenes. Cool. This is an article about really running, restoring Unix version 0 on a PDP-7. Hey, nice. Ah, they have some output here, from P <laughs> including the message, hello from the PDP-7 running Unix version 0. Cool. And uh, looking at the second link, it's all in the show notes if you're interested. Uh, there's also, ah, there's a little video, uh, PDP-7 booting and running. So that's uh, also interesting. So cool. Thanks for those uh, additions to our uh, collection of 50-year anniversary information. Uh, yeah, uh, let's see what else is there in the questions. Ah, yes, uh, Dave is the last one with a question uh, for Alan. Oh, okay. So I read this here. Uh, this one's for Alan. Okay, so I have a small Z pool that spins ZFS send dash LEV CP capital R to temps dash dot Z ZFS. So you basically uh, redirect it to a file and the stash dot ZFS move to a distribution server. The Z pool has over a three thousand, roughly three thousand data sets and clones. The initial send will most of the data was quick as usual, but the tail end where the clones are being received and linked up to the parent data set seems very slow. Each attaching the clone and receiving the incremental stream takes roughly 15 seconds, even though data is in most cases a few kilobytes. Any idea why and if it's possible to make this happen faster? Hmm. So, yeah, when you're receiving, each different snapshot is going to take a little bit of time because um, you have to create a file system, then import the snapshot and create it. And each of those is going to be a require a, a, a sync basically fleshing out the current transaction group. That can partly depend on how much other stuff you have running on the system at that time. Like if you have a lot of other writes going on, then uh, it's going to, you basically, you're going to close the transaction group for every snapshot you create, every clone you create, etc. And so that's going to take a little while to flesh out. Although 15 seconds each does seem a bit slow. Uh, probably a, a slow disk in the pool. Um, that could be it, although that's not necessarily uh, the problem. Yeah, if it's only happening during that. But yeah, I see. Each each snapshot you're creating is taking 15 seconds, and, you know, there's only a couple of bytes of data. Um, part of it is, uh, while this is happening, look at zpool iostat and see what the difference is. Yeah, and he's already using the embedded uh, pointer force, uh, you know, where you can store the the pointer in the... Or the data and a pointer if it's less than like 15 bytes or something. So that it's definitely using the proper options in ZFS send. Um, but yeah, I'm out of ideas what could be the the reason. 
And if, yeah, if you have 3,000 data sets and clones from like base jail templates, that takes a while. Hmm. If anyone else has an idea or has encountered the same problem and solved it, then let us know and we'll be happy to uh, mention it because, yeah, it seems like as more people are using ZFS longer and longer between systems and run more and more data sets on it, as you should, uh, it's definitely worthwhile having that in the performance that we are used to. Okay, nothing else about this. Um, so this wraps up this episode of BSD Now. This was episode 333. And bye-bye.